Well, it's good to see everyone this morning. If you have a Bible, please turn to Hebrews chapter 12. We have been working our way through this book, um, really taking our time and seeing all the different truths that the author uh, wants us to grab a hold of and really own. And each week, the book and the message of the book has been, um, Jesus is greater, Jesus is better, and that is no different this week. It was about 10 years ago, um, I don't know if you remember this on the news, when just about 40 miles off the coast of Japan, there was a 9.0 earthquake, and what that ended up doing was sending a huge tsunami toward the coast of Japan, uh, which destroyed the Fukushima power plant, if you'll remember that. That was a huge disaster. And then the tsunami itself um, killed thousands of people. And uh, for some reason, that probably because of the timing, it showed up on the side of my YouTube feed that all these videos of these waves coming in and taking ships with them inland and uh, homes and all kinds of stuff. It was just a huge natural disaster. And um, it got me thinking about what the believers in Hebrews were feeling. They were feeling the tide, the wave after wave, the push of the culture around them and the persecution of their neighbors and in the town that they were living in or in the city, wherever it was exactly. Um, They were feeling that tidal wave. And more and more, and we've, we've talked about this a number of times here, is we are feeling that as Christians today, and we will feel that even more and more in the future. This push of wave after wave of culture and the difference growing between Christianity and what a Christian is called to stand for and what the world is calling to stand for. And maybe you're feeling like the Hebrew believers as well, a little tired maybe. A little bit, not sure how you're going to fight against this, uh, these waves that are kind of coming and just kind of battering you and I. And um, the author wants us to think about that in chapter 12 here. And the example he's going to use to help us to think about that is not actually waves. It's not actually tsunamis. It's running a race. Running a race He's going to get us to think about this idea. And so in verse 1, we see right off the bat, he says, run the race with endurance. Look at verse 1 again. I know we just read it, but let's, let's listen to it again. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. The image of the runner was perfect for the first century. I mean, they were well familiar with the idea of a runner. I think it's familiar to all of us as well. I mean, at some point, probably in your life, you've run somewhere, okay? Maybe as a child, maybe you're not a runner per se, but you've run at some point in your life. But in the first century as well, they were familiar with, um, you can maybe think of the Olympics, right? They were familiar with the Olympics, but they were also familiar with Uh, runners who had jobs like they were people that would courier messages you know like we have 
email now or texting, they would be the moving texters, okay? So they would go from one place to the other with a message. And especially in Greece and ancient Rome, really hilly terrain. And so sometimes the runner was actually the fastest way to go, even faster than a horse at times, just because of the terrain and getting the message. And so a story that most you know, people in Greece and even in ancient Rome would have been familiar with was the story of the marathon, right? The, this famous story of a runner who was carrying a message of victory. So the Greeks had just beat the Persians in a battle, and he carried this message from Marathon to Athens, running about 40 kilometers, okay? And the, the legend goes that he did that nonstop, ran all the way there, uh, I think it was like in the night or whatever, and then he gave the message that the Greeks had won this battle, and then he conked over and died right on the spot, okay? And you can go there and see there's a statue there. You can see where Marathon died, and it kind of grew in folklore and legend, okay? And so when the Olympics restarted in the late 1890s, I think 1894 or something, they started the marathon race in kind of in memory or in celebration of this kind of historic connection to ancient Greece. Okay, so the, the, the image of the runner made sense to this audience for sure. And the Apostle Paul uses the image of a runner or an athlete in a lot of different places. So I just put a few here. There's more than this even, but Galatians 5, 7 he talks about running well. So he says, you are running well. Philippians 2.16 says, you know, hold fast the word of truth and don't run in vain or labor in vain. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then in 1 Timothy 4.7, he says, rather train yourself for godliness. Okay, so he's using this image to multiple churches um, that he wants to encourage with, with the idea of the run or the idea of a runner works for the idea of the believer. It should help us actually understand what it means to run as a believer. And he specifically says here, run with endurance. And the way that you do that is actually, he says there in the second part of the verses, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Okay, so each of us, I mean, we sin probably daily, okay? But then each of us has our own sins that kind of I think a good description is actually they cling to us. Like they are, some people would call them maybe besetting sins or something. They just like keep coming up. Maybe it's like we are very driven to be successful at work and to do really well, which is probably rooted more in this idea of maybe it's a love of money or maybe it's a love of like power. Or maybe it's, it's we want like the perfect family and we want everything to just look right and beautiful. And so it's a little bit of like, Pride coming in there and not wanting that to, you know, kind of rub off on us. Whatever it is. I mean, each of us has them, right? Each of us has different sins. And here, the writer is, is encouraging us, saying, lay those things aside. Lay those things aside. Why would he say that? Well, the reason he's saying that is because the, the purpose behind running the race, the, the purpose behind running the race of a Christian is ultimately that we would win, Right? Christ has won the battle for us, and now we are running the race. And so rather than being weighed down, he says, picture this image. You're a runner. You don't want to be weighed down with all these things. Lay them aside so that you can run the race to win it. And so the goal is actually to win. And 1 Corinthians 9.24 says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. 
Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So Paul there in 1 Corinthians is saying, listen, you guys know how the Olympics works. These people, they train and they work and they do all these things to win. And what did they get? You know what the award was back in the old days? It wasn't gold. It wasn't silver. It wasn't bronze. It was a bunch of leaves. Okay, literally. They tie up a little leaf crown for you and you are the champion. They put the wreath on and you put that wreath on your shelf and in about two weeks, it's dust, right? It's done. So Paul's saying, they just think of the effort they put in to running the race to win for their prize of a wreath of leaves. Our calling as Christians is to run the race to win because our reward is this imperishable reward. It is a reward of like eternity with Christ and living with Christ in the present world. So he says, why would we let earthly sins kind of cling to us and weigh us down when the reward is so much greater? So he says, run so that you can win this race. But another reason why we should not let those sins kind of hold us down is because we are free from the weight of them to begin with. When we put them on, we are doing what is unnatural for the believer. Because we have been set free from sins past, sins present, and sins in the future. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Colossians 3. I, I don't think I included it in the slides. But in Colossians 3, verses, starting in verse 5, he says this. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked. Right? Past tense. Those things were part of your life. That was how you walked. That was how you just knew how to exist. And now he says, that is not your reality now. Verse 8 says, but now you must put them all away. And he's got a different list. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of the Creator. So Paul says, don't, don't put on those things. Don't put on that sin that clings to you because that's not who you are as a believer. Live in the reality of your new life, which is this life in Christ. So that you can run with endurance. Because the walk that we do with Jesus is not meant to be a sprint, right? It is not like we are walking with Jesus for one week, and then we kind of do our own thing, and then, oh, we're back on, you know, another two weeks, maybe a month. It is meant to be a run of endurance. When I was a teenager, I went on a number of different missions trips, and I don't, I don't know if you've gone on a missions trip as a teenager, but it was like this um, spiritual high, we would call it, right? You're on this, like, mountaintop experience, and then at the end of the missions trip, we actually had a week that they called debrief, which was they were trying to somehow land the plane for these teenagers. Okay, we're on this spiritual high. We're just like loving Jesus, every, you know, WWJD bracelets all over. Okay, Jesus, everything. And then so many teens go back home and it's like back to the same way of life. Back to like, it, like the summer never happened. So the debriefs was trying to like land things a little bit so that it would actually stick. And that's, I think, the case for many of us is that we can go through this Christian life thinking that following Jesus is like a sprint. When it's not, 
He's saying here, it's a run of endurance. It is a run that is long-term, long-lasting, so that when you come to the end of your days, if you, you, know, if you live, I don't know what the average lifespan in Canada is, but let's say you live the average lifespan, 70, 80 years, you are still walking with Jesus at that time. That's the goal. Not that you would have a great run in your 20s, but that you would actually end your days, wherever it is, 40 years, 50, 70, 80, 90, walking with Jesus right to the end. That is the run of endurance that he's talking about here. And that's why sometimes the chapter breaks can be a disadvantage, right? Because the chapter break here in verse 12 kind of cuts it from chapter 11. But chapter 11 is all those people who faithfully followed God right to the end of their journey, however many years those were. And that's actually meant to kind of take us into 12 here to show us that it's actually possible that people have done it before. And so now we can to to run with endurance. So how do we run with endurance? If that is the if that's the what, okay, let's call it the what run with endurance. Now he's saying this is actually how you do it. And look at verse two here. Verse two says this. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So how is it that we actually run this race of endurance? What is the way that we do it so that we can, we can be that way, like right to the end of our days, following and being a Christian? Well, he, the author says here, we do it by looking to Jesus. By looking to Jesus, who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. I don't know about you, but it can be tempting, actually, to look at something else other than Jesus. It can be tempting to think that maybe my works will do it. If I'm just like a good enough person, even a a good enough Christian, if I kind of do all these things, that if I am nice and people are kind to me, I've got, you know, at the end of my life, I've got no murders on my record, Got maybe very few things that have stolen, you know, that somehow God's going to look down and say, this guy's A-OK, you know, he's pretty good. So maybe it's like these works that I'm doing. Or maybe it's something else. Maybe it's like, you know, I'm, I'm following someone who is really a, a great communicator or some, you know, we can follow any kind of podcast nowadays. If you don't like the sermons at Citizens, you can find someone that you like, right? Some great teacher and Follow them, and and maybe it's like, maybe their teaching will kind of lead me along. What really matters, actually, and what the author is trying to get us to see is that the person that we look to is not a great teacher. It's not someone who's super charismatic. It's not our own works. It's not the things that we do. It is we look to Jesus, to one person. We look only to Jesus And so this is actually, it's not a matter of knowing a lot about Jesus. It's actually a matter of focus. And and as I was reading this week about, I got, you know, I was researching running a little bit. So I got looking at like the Olympics and there's all kinds of examples out there about the Olympics. But there was this example that really fascinated me about this runner who lived in 160 BC. Okay, but he's like this well-known runner in the ancient world, they kept records of him. His name was Leonidas. He was a, from Rhodes. He was such an amazing runner that they actually deified him. Okay, They made him into a god because he was so amazing. And he ran races and won races in the sprinting category and in the long distance category. 
And he did it over a span of 12 years. Okay, so not even Usain Bolt, who is like the fastest man on the planet, has done anything close to that. Okay, running long distances, short distances, winning across 12 years of his career. And there's all kinds of writings on tablets about him. And so they actually kind of looked at what he was doing and how was he so successful. And they, they interviewed this racing coach, an Italian racing coach. And, and he said this, which I found really interesting. He said this, and he's talking a little bit more general about runners. But he says, the reason people reach the highest level is that they can consistently produce a movement pattern that produces a level of performance. Okay, so if you're a runner, that's what you want to be thinking about, this movement pattern that you've essentially perfected. And he says, and these techniques lead to consistency. Consistency. Over time, if you want to be a great athlete, you learn to do just a few things, you focus on a few things really well, that consistency will actually lead you towards success. And so he says here, our ability to consistently focus on a few of the right things will lead us to success. And this is actually what the author here in Hebrews is telling us. He's saying, if you want to have success, if you want to run the race and win the race, the way that you do that is by looking to Jesus. The way that you do that is by looking to Jesus. And in John chapter 14, I wish, I wish I had more time to really look at John 14, but in John 14, verses 1 through 6, you've got this interesting little dialogue between the disciples and Jesus, and specifically Thomas even. And it's like this point of confusion, and they're like wondering, what is all going on? Jesus is healing, and the kingdom of God is coming down. And they're, they're in a sense, they're crying out. And they're saying, okay, Jesus, what is happening here? Can you tell us, like, what are we supposed to do in, in the confusion of the kingdom of God coming down and being seen before them? And Jesus says this to them, verses that we're really familiar with as, as Christians. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So to answer Thomas in his moment of questioning and answering Thomas in this moment of confusion, he says, Thomas, look at me. You could almost imagine Jesus like being like, treating Thomas like a child, right? Look at me, Thomas. Okay, look at me right in the eyes. I want to boil it down for you. If you're confused, if you're wondering about the kingdom of God and how it works, it works this way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the only way. And he says, put your focus on me. And so there's a commitment there, a clarity, a, a statement of clarity um, for Thomas in the gospel there, but also for the church here. And so we are committed at, you know, as citizens church to the same thing, right? We are committed to not following a person, not following some sort of, you know, great idea. The only good idea we have here is that we worship Jesus. That's the only good idea we have. And we didn't come up with it. Okay. <laughs> We're not that creative. The only thing that we do is we follow Jesus. And so what we invite people to. And so if you're, if you're new here or if, or if you're going to invite people to, you know, come to be a part of Citizens and they ask like, what is this thing all about? You can say, go check out their website. But you can say, I can boil it down to one thing. These people are just there to follow Jesus. That's all they're there to do. Because that's our calling. Our calling is to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And so we do that 
with endurance. So as we run this race of endurance, right, we're running this race of endurance, the long haul, we want to run right to the end. We do it by looking at Jesus. And then, like, um, like any good movie, there's like this, there's the arc, right? At one point in a movie, everything seems to be going good, and then something happens. The plot thickens. That's usually how a movie works. It's kind of everything's going good, plot thickens about halfway, and then the rest of the movie is trying to find some resolution to that thickening of the plot. Well, now we realize that the author knows that in, in your mind and in the minds of the readers here, there's probably something kicking around in there. And it's maybe the most obvious thing of all. And so he just kind of goes into it. But it's the fact that life is really hard. Life is really difficult. There's a lot of hard challenges. So, yes, run the race with endurance. I'm all for that. Yes, look to Jesus. I'm all for that. But pain, suffering, hardship. Mm. Isn't there another way? Isn't there a different way that we could do it? And so the author here, he says, don't give up. Or maybe, I know my uh, Bible here at the top says, do not grow weary. I'm not sure what your section there says. But he's saying, listen, in the process of running with endurance, there are going to be hard things that come. And he says, don't give up. Don't grow weary. Don't let in. Don't throw in the towel because life is hard. And so the author here wants to, talk about those difficult things in life and he wants to shed some light on what is actually happening behind the scenes. What is actually, what is God doing in the midst of the, the hardships of life, the difficulties of life and the things that we experience? And for us, I think even in our day and age, I think this is gen, like generally humans are, find it difficult to go through hard times, but maybe we are even more predisposed predispossessed? Is that a word? Yeah. Um, not to suffer well, okay? We live, in, we live in one of the greatest countries in the world, right? Not the greatest. I just saw a study. Finland is number one. I'm not sure how they get to be number one every time, but Finland is number one. But we're in the top ten, right? We live in an amazing country. We have, um, like, amazing services, and we live in a world of Amazon Prime, right? The Amazon is trying desperately to get all of us signed on to Amazon Prime so that the package can get there within a day. And it's, it's a miracle, isn't it, that the package gets there in a day. And, and Google is trying to make sure, Sam can vouch for me here, that you know, we never have to wonder anymore, what is the capital city of Iceland? The answer will come to us in less than a second, right? Or maybe even faster. That may be the goal of Google. They are just trying to get information to us as quickly as possible so that Honestly, so that we don't have to experience endurance at all. So that we can just as quickly as possible find resolution to the small, minute problems that we face. And this makes it difficult for us to go through hardship and difficulty. But the author says, don't give up. Don't give up. And so he talks about discipline. And there's four things quickly that I just want to see from the last verses here where the author is helping us understand the discipline of the Lord. Okay, the discipline of the Lord. And, and when you might be, you might hear the word discipline, you might be thinking of um, like an angry parent towards a child. But this, this word discipline is more the idea of training. 
Okay, and you can see that actually the, lo- the last verse, uh, verse 11, he talks about this idea of being trained. Okay, that may be a better word to help us understand the discipline of the Lord. It's, a, it's the training ground of what God is doing in your life, in my life, and the way that he wants us to learn and grow to follow him, to have that endurance in the midst of difficulty. So let's look at verse 3. Let me start by reading verse 3. And the first point here is that discipline has purpose. Okay? The training of the Lord has purpose to it. So verse 3, if you have a Bible, you'll see it. I think I only included verse 5 there. But verse 3 says, Consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. So he says, you guys have actually forgotten that God in all the things that he's doing has purpose behind it. Now, sometimes it's hard to know, like, okay, of all the difficult things that I'm facing, what is the discipline of the Lord? Because sometimes there is consequences to sins that we commit, that we face. Sometimes there's consequences of other people's sins that we have to experience. And sometimes the discipline of the Lord is working through all those things. God is using everything. And, and they were forgetting this truth. They were forgetting this reality. If you turn a page over in chapter 10, verse 34, it shows that they actually had the, pers- the right perspective at some point. Verse 34 says, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So at one point, in the midst of like that very deep hardship, imagine the plundering of their property, they still had joy. They had the perspective that this is really hard, but God is doing something through this. I, I might not get it, but I know that in this hardship, in this moment, God is actually working and doing something, and it's for my good. And now he says in chapter 12, man, you guys have forgotten that. You knew it before. You were standing in that truth, and you've forgotten it. And so he's trying to remind them that God is, is, never, is never asleep at the wheel. God is never, ever caught surprised by the difficult things that you and I go through. God is not like away grabbing a coffee when something happens to us and he comes back and he's like, what? how did this happen? Where I was gone for two minutes and all this. That is not how God works. God knows everything that is going on, all the hardship, and he sees and is with us. Henry Nouwen um, makes a really interesting observation. He says this, We often pray for health, wealth, comfort, success, and popularity of the gods of this age, and that God would protect us from the things that we fear most. And he does, until he doesn't. And then we find him leading us precisely to the situations that we fear the most. Broken relationships, illness, vocational crisis, financial struggles. We could probably put in there a global pandemic. And he goes through it with us to show us that we don't need to be afraid. In the first answer to prayer, we stay comfortable, but the fear remains. In the second answer to prayer, we are very uncomfortable, but we are healed. And we grow out of our fear because we are with him. See the, two, see the difference there? The one where we're saying, man, just keep me out of this. 
The other one, it says, I'm going to go through this and God has purposes and he is with me right in the midst of it. So discipline has a purpose. Secondly, discipline is for family members. Look at verse 7. It says this, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. So discipline actually is a sign of being a part of God's family. So there's a big difference between the training that God is doing in our lives and how we may interpret that as punishment from God. Okay, it is not punishment from God. Christ has absorbed all the punishment for us. For things that we've done and things that we will do, Christ has absorbed all that punishment. So the, the hardship that we go through, the training that God allows us to enter into, is coming through the hands of a loving Father. And maybe the challenge for some of us is that we have, um, we have our own fathers in mind, which, I mean, the author even admits that they, I mean, they just tried their best, right? They tried the best that they could. And their best, for some people, was decent. For some people, it was terrible. It was a terrible situation. And so we can actually bring that view into, you know, we can kind of transpose that onto the text here. But the text is saying the way that God trains us, the way that God disciplines us is perfect. It's not like our faulty fathers, who even the, the best of our fathers we're not that great at disciplining. This is coming through the hands of a perfect Heavenly Father. So discipline is actually for family members. And third, discipline is not easy. So look at 11a. First part of verse 11. It says, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Amen to that? Right? The hardship that we go through is hard. The things that we go through in life that we don't like are, are difficult. And the Bible doesn't gloss that over. It doesn't say just like, you know, smile, buck up. It's all good. You'll get through it. No, it's actually really honest. It says when you go through hard times, they're hard. When you go through pain in your life, it's painful. Acknowledge that pain. You can tell that to God because God is actually very aware of that and he's so where he's put it into scripture. And so discipline, training is difficult. And, and those of us who have kids, or if you've um, seen, you know, parents with little kids, it's not easy, right? Especially to discipline a little kid. The, the kid doesn't like it, okay? They feel like they understand how the world works, and they want to do it the way that they want to do it. And the parent doesn't like it either. It's like it's painful for the parent often to do the, the disciplining. And so the pain is real. I can remember uh, Liz actually telling a story when we lived in Africa of going into the, the village and seeing the, you know, they always cooked on open fires. And so they would have these open fires with three rocks and they'd have like massive 
cauldrons where they're cooking rice or they're cooking sauce. And it's just open. And so Liz was in there with our youngest. She was a, our, our oldest. Um, she was a toddler, Maria, walking around and telling her, stay away from that. Don't go near. And I can't remember all the details. Liz can clarify it. But basically it was like Maria started crying because it was like, you can't go near there. And, and then the lady that Liz was talking to was like, oh, just kind of leave her be. And Liz was like, well, what's easier I tell her not to walk towards this giant cauldron of boiling water or I just let her be and she walks toward it. What, what would you rather have as the result? And then the lady was like, okay, yeah, you're right. It just, the fact was, we don't like to see the discipline happen. It's painful. And people don't like it. And parents don't like it. The kids don't like it. And it's painful. But the result is, look at the last thing. The result is that discipline works. Okay, when we get through all the tears, when we get through, through the hardship, when we get through the difficulty, we see actually, look at verse 11, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Later it yields peaceful, peaceful fruit of righteousness. After the fact, we see that it's actually doing something. It's actually working. When we've come through it, when we come to the other side of it, we see God is actually doing it. In the middle of it, it just looks painful. It just looks terrible. We just want out of it. But God is actually doing something. It makes me think of the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers, living in, in prison and working as a servant for literally for years. Hardship, difficulty. Joseph's like, what did I do to deserve all these? Like, why? And yet, later in his life, right at the end of the book, right at the end of Genesis 50 verse 20, even at the end when his brothers still don't trust him, they're still kind of questioning his motives. What does he say? He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about what, that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That's, that's the perspective of after the fact Seeing that God actually is, is good, even through all this evil and hardship that has happened to Joseph. He's able to look, running this race of endurance, he's able to look back and say, God somehow was able to do this so that like, our whole family was saved because of it. Now, if you'd asked Joseph, Joseph, if you could have had all these things without difficulty, he probably would have said, yeah, absolutely. That'd be great. I would take that. And probably all of us would. But God knows that we need training. We need actually the discipline of the Lord. There are things that we can learn through hardship that we will never learn through the easy things in life. And so discipline, training is a gift in many ways from God. And so the ultimate proof and the proof that this text is true for us is the author keeps pointing us back to Jesus, right? So even in discipline we didn't really look at it much but in verse three there he talks about like when you're thinking about discipline do it through the lenses of looking at the life of jesus he was the one who endured suffering he was the one who actually endured the weight of all of our sin for us and so god says i'm not just telling you to do something i'm telling you to do something that i've done before you i've actually gone before you in this process and so we look to jesus who is the author and the perfecter as we run this race of endurance. So this week I was 
Um, it just happened to be that I follow this guy on Twitter, um, Eddie Koffels. I used to listen a lot to the relevant podcast. I don't know if you listen to that podcast, but I haven't listened to it for years. But anyways, his tweet came up, and he, sa- he had this um, article that he had written in Runner's World. And it talked about how, you know, before the pandemic started, he was going from 39 to 40, okay, turn over the hill, right? Is that what they call it? When you turn 40, right, you're, you're kind of like, you're halfway through a normal life. And so he was like evaluating his life and he was like, um, I am halfway through my life and am I going to live to the full totality? And he's just thinking health-wise, okay? And so he was like, I've never done any exercising. This is his own words. I've never done any sports. He said, I think he said, I'm 305 pounds of just zero muscle mass, okay? And he's like, if I want to live like a few more decades here, I need to change. And so obviously it's an article in Runner's World. So he talks about how he grabbed his shoes that he uses for lawn mowing and he um, downloaded the free app. I think it was like Couch to a Marathon or something like that. I don't know. And he just started going one day after the other. And I, I think we got a picture of him here just kind of one day after the other um, learning to kind of I was almost going to say enjoy running, but I think he says in the article that he still doesn't enjoy running, okay? It wasn't to enjoy running. But he does say this, that, you know, at the end of the year, he had run over 550 miles, okay? Including multiple 5Ks, 10Ks, and a half marathon. But his journey didn't start out trying to run 550 miles. His journey didn't start out wanting to run a bunch of 5Ks and 10Ks or even a half marathon. His journey just started really with one choice, one decision. Because if most of us were given the challenge of, okay, next year you're going to run 550 miles, most of us would say, I don't know about that. I can't do that. But listen to what he says. He says it, it wasn't that he wanted to run all these miles. It was possible to decide one day to go out there and do something new. I don't actually know if I like running, but I like living. And running gives me life. If you have your mowing shoes, lace them up. I'll see you on the trail. He discovered that what it took actually was one choice on one given day. And what it ended up being a race was a race of endurance through the year. But the line that I really liked in there was that he says, but I like living. And I think if the author of Hebrews had read this article, he would say, there it is. Running is still an example for us today. It still shows us that that's what it means to be a believer. That's what it means to be a Christian, is to run with endurance, is to not give up. And as we run these races every day, one choice at a time, what we're actually doing is living, like really living as believers through the pain, following Jesus, looking to him, solely focused on him, but living as God has meant us to live as men and women who follow Jesus through every difficulty and see that on the other end, our endurance has actually given us the greatest prize. Not, not a leafy wreath, but actually the person of Jesus Christ himself. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for uh, this scripture and just even the the imagery that comes to us from the text that helps us uh, understand the Christian walk. And and Lord, that it's difficult. 
it's hard. Lord, you don't hide those things from us. 